0: Back to Galatians 4, when you've gotten there, let's bow our heads and we'll ask God's blessing. My Father, this morning as I stand before this congregation of your people, as I stand over your word, I pray that the word would stand over us. I pray that it would reign supreme, that we would hear it, believe it, obey it, and receive it. Father, my my request is simple. I pray that those who are here who are born according to the flesh would be born according to the promise. I pray that those who are born according to the promise would recognize, embrace, and revel this morning in the freedom of what that means. So I pray that you would bring your word, that it would come forth with power, the power to call forth into being that which does not exist, the power to call life out of death, The power to cause shackles of legalism and rituals and all of those things that bind us. Cause those shackles to fall from our wrists. I pray that your word would come with power this morning. And that we would leave here saying, I've met with God. Come and glorify yourself. Do for us what we cannot do. Do for us what we don't even know what to ask for. Come in power. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read this week that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who divide the world into two kinds of people, and there are those who do not. But... This twofold division, it begins to sound cliche, it begins to sound overly simplistic. You say, I know of a lot of different kinds of people. I get that. But biblically speaking, the world is divided into two kinds of people from Genesis to Revelation. In the Psalms, you have the righteous and you have the wicked. In the Proverbs, you have the wise and you have the foolish. In the prophets, God speaks of my people and those who are not my people. Jesus in the Gospels divides the world into the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. Paul says there are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. In Galatians alone, Paul asserts that there are those who are of faith and those who are of works. There are those who are the blessed and those who are the cursed. There are those who are of the flesh and those who are of the spirit. I mean, it's everywhere. But near the end of Galatians chapter 3 and throughout all of Galatians chapter 4, Paul is primarily concerned to divide the world and even the church into the categories of slaves and sons. And my burning desire is that First Baptist Church of Nixa would be a congregation full of sons and free of slaves. I'm zealous that that would happen. That we would be a church full of the sons and the daughters of free, freedom, not a church full of of joyless slaves of legalism. And let me be clear from the outset what I think that this freedom entails. What does Paul mean when he speaks of being free? What does it mean to be free in Christ? Well, I think that freedom is experienced in two very important senses in Paul's mind. Number one, it's a freedom from striving. This is what I think Paul has in mind when he speaks of being free from the law. See, the law says obey and God will accept you. Disobey and God will reject you. To be a slave is to be free from that paradigm. To be a slave of the law is to constantly strive to earn God's acceptance through my own efforts and my own obedience, but always to live in fear of his rejection because I simply cannot be good enough no matter how hard I try. Freedom is being outside of that mindset. And that freedom comes by means of the cross. The cross sets us free from our striving under the law because the gospel of the cross says that Christ obeyed in my place and therefore God accepts me. Christ died in my place and was rejected in my place. And that's why God embraces me as a son. He's done it all. And he did it all for me. But second, this freedom in Christ is a freedom from sin. See, before I was converted, I was a slave. I was a slave to the lusts of my flesh and to the corruption of my mind and the bondage of evil desires, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. But by grace, when I was converted, when God called me to Himself, He sent forth the Spirit of His Son to take up residence within my heart. That Spirit by which I call out, Abba, Father. That Spirit that produces within me both the will and the, the ability to obey God. By the Spirit of Christ, I am enabled to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to produce the fruit of the Spirit. I'm free. This is what it means to be a son or a daughter of freedom. This is what it means to be free in Christ. By the cross of Christ, I'm set free from the tyranny of having to strive to earn God's acceptance. And I'm free from the fear of His punishment and judgment because I can't. I'm free to walk in the joy of of knowing that God has done everything necessary to redeem me from the slavery to the law and to adopt me as his very own son. And by the spirit of Christ, I am free from having to obey out of a hope of reward or a fear of punishment. I already have the reward in Christ. The punishment has already been meted out at the cross. So now I can can obey God without having to have the carrot on the stick dangling in front of me. Do this and you'll get to heaven. Don't do this and you'll go to hell. I can obey God out of a genuine love for my Father and out of the delight that it brings me to do His will. I'm free. And I want you to be free too. Because the children of God are the freest people in the world. We are slaves neither to striving to earn God's favor nor to the sin and the bondage and the lusts of our own flesh so that, as Paul says, we act like unreasoning animals like the rest of the world. We're free from that. By the cross and by the Spirit. The freest people in the world. We don't have to obey in order for God to justify us, yet we're the only ones who can and do actually obey God. Consequently, we're the only ones who are actually free to live in joy. What I'm talking about, Paul is going to explain by means of a metaphor in Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. He's going to describe the difference between slaves. And sons. And he's going to reach back into the Old Testament narrative. The Old Testament account of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael. And he's going to see in that allegory a description of the two kinds of people that he sees in Galatia. Those who are in bondage to the law and those who are free through the son. The passage before us can be divided into three sections. We can see the historical background in verses 21 to 23. We can see Paul's allegorical interpretation in verses 24 to 27. And we see the present application in verses 28 to 31. So let's, let's walk through this text beginning with the historical background. What is this story that Paul is referencing in Galatians 4? Well, Paul begins in verse 21 with this rather blunt question. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you even listen to the law? He's addressing those who want to do things in order for God to love them. Those who want to be under the law, those who want to base their relationship with God on their own works, on their own obedience, on their own efforts. They want to make justification dependent upon circumcision and adherence to dietary codes and regulations and observance of feasts and festivals And their obedience to the Old Testament covenantal law. In response, frankly, Paul wonders if they've even read the Old Testament that they're plumbing in order to get all of these rules. He then offers his own interpretation of one of the best known stories of the Old Testament. The account of Hagar and Sarah. Verses 22 and 23, he summarizes it in this way. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons... One by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. In order to gather the background of the story, I want to invite you to turn back to Genesis with me. Let's take a little brief tour of what happens with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael. If you'll turn back with me to Genesis chapter 12, the verses that we're going to be going to are are printed for you in your bulletin. You can kind of follow along and be ready to turn when we get there. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of Babylon, and he promises to bless him and to multiply him, and to make of him a great nation. We find down in verse 7, where the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So the promise included giving to Abraham's descendants, to his seed, the land of promise. In Genesis 15, God comes back to Abraham, and he reaffirms his covenantal promise, but, but Abraham's faith wavered. We read in verses 2 and 3 where Abraham asked of the Lord, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir to my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Since you have given me no offspring, one born into my house is my heir. But look at God's response in verse 4. This man shall not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body and he shall be your heir. The Lord then told him, verse 5, that his descendants would become a people more numerous than the stars of the sky. And verse 6 is a great verse. We've already been there in our study of Galatians. Abraham believed the word of God. He believed God's gospel promise. He believed and he was justified. But years continued to pass and the promise went unfulfilled. So finally, Sarah decides she's going to take matters into her own hands, and she's going to bring the promise to pass by her own striving and her own efforts and her own scheming. So she decides she's going to give to Abraham her handmaid, an Egyptian slave by the name of Hagar, who became his wife. And Hagar conceived and gave birth to a son, and his name was Ishmael. This is found in Genesis 16. But God didn't give up on Abraham. And in Genesis 17, he comes back and he reaffirms and reestablishes that covenantal promise. And he specifies in Genesis 17 that Sarah herself would give him a son. And that the blessing that he had promised back in Genesis 12 was going to flow through his offspring. But not his offspring according to Hagar. It was going to flow through Sarah Abraham again faltered, however, and he laughed, as many of us would. I am 100 years old. And my wife over here is 90. And she's going to produce me a child. Notice what he does. He begins to plead with God, thinking God can't do the impossible. So let me plead with him that he would just do the possible. He would just take what what we've already done. He would take our our, our efforts that we've already produced. Look at what we've already done. Can't this be good enough? Verse 18 of chapter 17. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. That is, live before you as my heir. But God will have none. Look at me, beloved. Beloved. God will have none of our own self-efforts. God will fulfill His promise by Himself. By His own power and in His own time. So that He receives all of the glory. Verse 19, no. But Sarah your wife will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Finally, in Genesis 21, it happens. Look at Genesis 21.1. And notice the difference between the way that it happened with Hagar. You know where Sarah gave to Abraham, Hagar. And Abraham went in and Hagar conceived and gave birth. God wasn't anywhere in Genesis 16. God is all over Genesis 21. Then the Lord took note of Sarah. And as he had said, so the Lord did for Sarah according to what he had promised. In Genesis 21, when Isaac was weaned, God told Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael and to drive them away from the covenant community so that there would be no confusion as to who the heir of the promise was. His covenant would be with Isaac, the son of the free woman. Finally, in Genesis 22, verses 16 to 18, God once and for the last time reaffirms his covenant with Abraham and with his seed and we know from Galatians 3.17 that that seed was Isaac who pointed ahead to Christ. And he promised that through your seed I will make a descendants who, are, who outnumber the sand of the seashore and the stars of the heavens and, and your seed will possess the gates of his enemies so that through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God did it. And he did it through his son who is Christ. Well, back in Galatians chapter four, verses 22 to 23, Paul summarizes this story, and, and he takes these 10 chapters and he squashes them together, and he basically says, "You know what? Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman who is Hagar, and one by the free woman who is Sarah. And then I want you to look very closely at Galatians 4:23, But the son of the bondwoman, that is Ishmael, was born according to the flesh." And the son of the free woman, that is Isaac, was born according to the spirit, according to the promise. There are two important distinctions that Paul sees between Ishmael and Isaac, and he wants to point them out, and he's going to make heavy use of this as we proceed on through the rest of this passage. Number one, he says, I want you to know they had two very different mothers. Hagar was a slave. She was a bondwoman. She was the illegitimate wife of Abraham. All Hagar could produce, therefore, were slaves and illegitimate children. Remember that. All legalists can produce are slaves and illegitimate children. On the contrary, Sarah was a free woman, the legitimate wife of Abraham. And all Sarah could produce were freeborn, true and genuine sons of the fathers. And that's all the gospel produces. Second, Paul notes that they had two very different births. Ishmael was born, Paul says, according to the flesh, while Isaac was born according to the promise. A little bit later in verse 29, he's going to say he was born according to the spirit. What does this mean? Well, Ishmael was born out of faithlessness. Faithlessness. As Sarah sought to produce a son by her own will and her own efforts and her own striving and her own scheming, she was going to make it happen. Ishmael was the result of human effort, human will, and human striving. He was born, therefore, according to the flesh, but not Isaac, Isaac was born according to the promise. Genesis 21:1. when God decided in the fullness of time and in accordance with His sovereign will that He was going to bring forth the fulfillment of His promise, He did it. And Sarah conceived and she gave birth to a son and they called His name Isaac. Isaac was the child of God's will. He was the child of God's power. He was the fulfillment of God's promise. God did it. Not Sarah, not Abraham, Not Hagar, born of God, was Isaac. And so are his descendants. So Ishmael was the son of slavery, a child of the flesh, the result of a natural birth. Isaac is the son of freedom, the child of promise, the result of a supernatural birth. All right, so Paul Paul takes all of that. from, from just a surface reading of Genesis 12 and 22, 12 through 22. We could have gotten the same thing if we had the right lenses on while we were reading Galatians, or Je- while we were reading Genesis. But beginning in Galatians 4.24, Paul is going to go a step further, and he's going to give the, the Hagar and Sarah story his own, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his own allegorical interpretation of, Of what's really going on and what this story represents. Because Paul sees in the struggle between Hagar and Sarah. The struggle between Ishmael and Isaac. The very same struggle that's happening in the Galatian churches. The very same thing that's happening in American churches today. The battle between gospel people and legalists. And he says Genesis has something to teach us about this. So look what he writes beginning in verse 24. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. All right, here's how the allegory works. According to Paul, the story of Hagar and Sarah is really the story of two covenants proceeding forth from two mountains, representing two cities, and producing two types of children one producing the children of slavery, and the other producing the children of freedom. Paul says, Hagar represents the covenant of law, or the covenant of works, or the covenant of Moses, or the old covenant, depending on how we might term it. And this covenant of law proceeds forth from Mount Sinai in Arabia, which he says corresponds to present-day Jerusalem, and it produces children of slavery, slaves of the law who will not and cannot inherit the promised blessing. Sarah, on the other hand, produces or she represents the covenant of promise or the covenant of grace or the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Christ, which becomes known to us as the new covenant. But this covenant of grace proceeds from Mount Zion, which, although Paul doesn't state it, it's implied. You can find it in Hebrews 12, 24 to, or 18 to 24. And Mount Zion corresponds to the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above. And the children of the Jerusalem that is above are children of freedom and the heirs of the promised blessings. So what's Paul's point? The point of this allegory is that there are, in the end, only two ways to relate to God. See, God has made two overarching covenants with man. He's made a covenant of law and he's made a covenant of grace. And if you try to relate to God on the basis of works, then you are under the covenant of law and you are an offspring of Hagar and you are doomed to a lifetime of slavery because Hagar cannot beget children of freedom. Why? Because what does the law say? The law says obey and you will receive righteousness and blessing and life. Disobey and you will receive judgment and cursing and death. But we can't obey because we're born into this world in Adam as slaves of sin. Therefore, slavery is all that can result from the covenant of law. It can only produce religious slaves, law-abiding slaves. And slaves do not inherit the promise of the gospel. Slavery is all that can result from this way of relating to God, from relating to him by the covenant of law, a slavery to striving, a slavery to fear because we'll never measure up, a slavery to despair because what's the use and eventually a slavery to death and hell. It is slavery to approach God with our own works in our hands because he won't accept them. And Paul says that those who belong to the earthly Jerusalem in his day. Put yourself back in the context. In his day, the earthly Jerusalem, they're under this covenant of law. They're the children of Hagar. They belong at Mount Sinai. This is an explicit reference to the Judaizers who are afflicting the Galatian church because they come from Jerusalem. And they cared so deeply about everything that Jerusalem represented. Its temples and its sacrifices and its rituals and its feasts and its festivals and its law. But it's also a reference to the legalists of every age. Legalists found within the church. They're from Jerusalem. Those who attain, listen... Attain or maintain their acceptance before God on the basis of external religious rituals. Reading the Bible, going to church, giving tithes. That's how I keep God happy. That's how I secure my place in his kingdom. That's how I earn his love. By doing stuff. Good stuff. Religious stuff. No, those who relate to God on the basis of works are the children of Hagar, and Hagar only begets slaves. Hagar only begets Ishmaels. And Ishmaels can never be free, and they can never be heirs of the promise because they are born according to the flesh. They are the children of self-will, self-determination, self-reliance. On the other hand, If you relate to God on the basis of faith in Christ, then you're under a completely different covenant. You're under a covenant of grace. And your mountain is not Sinai, which which rumbles with the thunder of God's wrath as he hurls down threats and warnings and commands at you. That's not your mountain, Paul says. Your mountain is Zion, where God dwells in the midst of his redeemed people in everlasting righteousness and peace and joy. You're not a citizen of the earthly Jerusalem with its formal religion and its, and its temple and its sacrifices and its feasts and its festivals and its do this and do that and God will accept you. That's not your city. You belong to the heavenly Jerusalem which is the bride of Christ that's been adorned as a bride for her husband and will come down out of heaven in Revelation 21. 1. That's your Jerusalem where God dwells. And most importantly, you were not born according to the flesh, but you were born according to the promise, born according to the Spirit, born not of your own works, of your own self reliance, of your own self determination, but born of sovereign grace in the fulfillment of God's sovereign purpose at the appointed time God gave you birth. You're free. You grace people, you are free from striving, you're free from from fear, you're free from despair, you're free from death, you're free to walk in joy and love and peace and forgiveness, you're free to shine like the stars of the heavens in holiness before your God and Father out in the midst of a dark world, you're absolutely free, that's why he says rejoice! Rejoice! Barren woman who does not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. More numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. This is, Paul wrote this because he was excited about Isaacs. And he wanted them to know what was their inheritance. Freedom was their way of life. Joy was their inheritance. Grace was was their way of walking. Righteousness and blessing and love, that's what it means to be an Isaac. That's what it means to be a child of the promise, a child of freedom, a child of grace. Two different types of people in the world. And Paul's going to call us to pick a side. Which camp are we in? So in this passage, Paul takes the Old Testament story of Sarah and Hagar, he gives it an allegorical interpretation, and then in verses 28 to 31, he's going to apply it to the present context in Galatia, and by way of application then, Paul is going to call upon the Galatians and the Holy Spirit this morning, this is the word of God to his people at First Baptist Nixa, you who are gathered here, this is the word of God to you this morning, he's going to call you to three things. On the basis of this text, number one, he's gonna call you to recognize your status. Paul was cautiously hopeful that the Galatian church were Isaac's and not Ishmael's. He was cautiously hopeful that they were the children of Sarah and not the children of Hagar. Cautiously hopeful that they were the sons of freedom and not the children of slaves. What status they held before God, however, would be made evident by the way that they responded to his letter. Paul was concerned for the Galatians, and throughout this letter he expresses that concern, but he does so with an underlying strain of hope that they are indeed free. So even after he calls them foolish, even after he wonders if he might have labored over them in vain... Even in the midst of warning them in the strongest of language in chapter 5. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. You who want to be justified by the law. There is woven from chapter 1 through chapter 6 this hope that they're free. And all they need is some instruction in order for them to cast out the Judaizers and to drive the legalists from their midst and to live in the joy of the freedom for which Christ has set them free. And so I expressed the same hope this morning. I hope you're free. I expect that you are. But let's check. This verse, this whole passage indeed, was intended to hit Paul's Judaizing opponents between the eyes. I love it. He takes every, every phrase that they would have applied to themselves and he applies it to the Galatians, and he says, you're, you're not the children of Isaac, Judaizers, you're actually the child of Ishmael. And Sarah's not your mother, Hagar is. And Jerusalem, that you still sort of hold as the, the holy place, that actually belongs to Sinai, and Sinai belongs to Hagar, and Hagar belongs to slavery. But my people here, the Gentiles, you, you, Or those of whom you say that they're they're the children of Ishmael and they're cut off from the promise and they're separated from the people of God. And if they listen to you, they would they would believe that they had to be circumcised and they had to begin working in order to be accepted. But you've got it all wrong, he says, they're free and you're not. And if they listen to you, they won't be free either. The Judaizing legalists are Ishmael. They're cut off from the promise. They're under the curse of God. So he, so he writes to the church and he separates it into two groups. Isaacs and Ishmael. And as he does so, we have the opportunity to evaluate which group we're in. So I, I want to ask you three questions this morning. I'm going to ask you three questions. To help you evaluate which covenant you're under. Are you under law or are you under grace? Question number one. How do you relate to God? Do you relate to God on the basis of law and works or on the basis of grace and faith? Is your relationship to God conditioned upon your obedience? Do you fear that if you don't read your Bible tomorrow morning, God will love you less? Do you fear that if you fall into that sin you've been struggling with, God will love you less. Do you fear that tomorrow if you lose your temper with your children, that God's just going to be radically disappointed with you? He might even just kick you away. Or is your relationship to God conditioned solely upon Christ's blood and righteousness such that your relationship to Him never wavers, falters, changes, at least not from His perspective? Do you have the confidence of knowing I'm accepted in the sight of God? Say, so how in the world could you have that confidence? Aren't you a sinner? Absolutely. But Jesus wasn't. And God sees me in him. And God sees my sin as having been atoned for by the blood of his cross. And God sees his righteousness as clothing me. And his blood and his righteousness and his perfection and his glory never changes. And if God sees me in him, then God's affection for me never changes. And his acceptance of me never changes. If God's affection for and acceptance of you never changes, you are either a slave or a freeborn son with severe slave-like tendencies. And you need to come out from among them and be free. Second question. How were you born? Was your birth into your current religious life according to the flesh, like Ishmael, or according to the promise, like Isaac? Was your entrance into your present religious life the product of self-determination, self-effort, self self Reliance. Did you become a Christian as a result of performing a ritual? Walking the aisle, raising the hand, signing the card, going through the baptist, baptistry, finishing confirmation. A life begun by works is a life lived by works. It's slavery, and the end thereof is death. Or were you born of grace? Were you born of the Spirit? Were you born of promise? Or to throw it in the language of Paul, did you receive the Spirit through works of law or through the hearing with faith? How were you born? I want you to listen closely to me. I'm going to deal with the altar call for a second, if you'll allow me to. I'm not saying that if an altar call was part of your conversion experience that that you're an Ishmael and a slave. Just as I'm not saying if an altar call was not a part of your conversion experience that you're an Isaac and a free child. What I'm saying is that the altar call is nothing. I'm saying the same thing that Paul says in Galatians 6.15 when he says, Neither is circumcision nor uncircumcision anything. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. What matters is a new creation, he says. So I would say to you, it doesn't matter if you walked an aisle or didn't walk an aisle. You may not have walked an aisle, and you may not be a new creation. You may have walked an aisle, and you may not be a new creation. You may have stayed in your seat, and you may be a new creation. You may have walked the aisle, and you may be born again. The altar call is nothing. What matters is a new creation. What matters is that you didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to get born again today. And here's what I'm going to do to do it. I'm going to walk up to the front. I'm going to raise my hand. I'm going to pray that prayer. I'm going to sign that card. I'm going to go through the baptism. I'm going to go through confirmation. I'm going to do whatever whatever these people tell me I got to do in order to become a child of God. That's what I'm going to do. That's a birth according to the flesh. And that's a child of Hagar and it's a slave. You must be born of the promise. You must be born of the spirit. And the reason why I so often pick on the altar call and the reason why we don't do one here at least not in the way that most people have always seen it, is because I think that modern-day evangelicals have made the altar call what the Judaizers were making of circumcision. That is, an addition to faith as the way you get right with God. And so we will not do it. I will not allow the people in this congregation to wonder, was I born of the flesh or was I born of the Spirit? Did I receive the Spirit through works of the law or did I receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? And I want you to say, I wasn't looking for him, but he found me. I wasn't seeking him, but he sought me. I was dead and he made me alive. I didn't exist and he called me forth. I was 90 years old, I was 100 years old, and God gave life to me. Born of the Spirit. Born of the promise. And not according to the flesh. What is crucial is a new creation, which God does. And then when the fullness of time had come, the Lord visited Sarah. And the Lord performed all that the Lord had promised. Do you see the correlation? In the fullness of time, when I was six years old, When I was nine years old, when I was 21 years old, when I was 45 and had been in church all my life, in the fullness of time, the Lord visited me and he performed according to his good purpose and according to his gospel promise and he gave me birth. That's the testimony of an Isaac. Last question. At which mountain do you worship? You worship at Mount Sinai, which smokes and rumbles with the thunder of God's wrath. Is your Bible reading, is your sermon hearing something akin to going to Mount Sinai to hear God thunder down commands and issue threats of judgment such that your obedience to him is motivated by fear of punishment or a hope of reward? Is that the God that you worship, the God at the top of Sinai? Or do you worship at Mount Zion where God dwells in the midst of his redeemed people whom he accepts freely by his grace on account of his son? What defines your relationship to God, Sinai or Zion? Birth according to the flesh or birth according to the spirit, according to the promise? A relationship conditioned upon your obedience, your efforts, your works? or a relationship that is unconditional as far as you are concerned, but conditioned upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus. There's the difference. Second, this passage calls us to resist legalizing influences in our lives and in our church that would seek to enslave us again. Paul writes in verses 29 and 30, But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. Paul's referring back to Genesis 21, and there was this story where when Isaac was a toddler, maybe about three, and Ishmael was a teenager, maybe about 17, all the text says is that Ishmael was mocking Isaac, and Sarah saw it. It's unclear what this mocking entailed, but Paul sees it as a sinister act akin to persecution. And he likens it to the persecution which the Judaizers, the descendants of Ishmael, are afflicting upon the Christians like himself and like the true believers in Galatia who are the descendants of Isaac. See, slaves resent the true sons because it's the sons who have the will or have the love of their father and who receive the father's inheritance. Legalists can't stand gospel people because they're not working so hard. Hard Hard-working people resent people who don't work as hard. Paul also finds the answer to this persecution in the text of Genesis, verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. This was Sarah's response to the mockery that she had witnessed. She told Abraham, cast out Hagar and Ishmael from the covenant community. And this greatly distressed Abraham as it would any father. But God comes to Abraham and says, you do what Sarah says. Do not be distressed because of the lad and her maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And Paul's point is clear. Ishmael's have no place within the church of Jesus Christ. He's commanding the Galatian churches to drive out the Judaizers from their midst. He's commanding the Galatians to see them for what they really are. They are illegitimate sons who are trying to sneak their way into their father's inheritance. And since they have no share in the father's inheritance, they want the true sons to share in their yoke of slavery. They want the Galatians to become as they are, which is slaves who are under rules and rituals and conditional standing before God. And Paul says, No, don't you allow it. Don't you do it. You cast out the bondwoman and her son. Beloved, I would tell you, do not tolerate those who come to you with rules and say, Do this or else God won't love you. Do that or else God won't accept you. Do not allow the legalists to gain a foothold in your life or in this church. Cast them out. Because they bring with them a deadly poison. Do not be seduced by their ways. It is not some higher Christian life. Slavery to striving is no different than slavery to sin. Legalism is but a sanctified version of paganism. And Christ has died to set you free from both. Thirdly and finally. This passage calls us to revel in our freedom. This is the third exhortation in this passage, and it's found in verse 31 and on into verse 1 of chapter 5. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. The call of this text is for us to recognize who we are. We're the children of freedom. To stand firm against the slavery of legalism and then simply to enjoy the freedom for which Christ has set us free. So beloved, I speak to you this morning who relate to God on the basis of grace and faith. You're under the covenant of grace. Let me tell you what is true of you. Listen up. You are Isaac. You are the son of Sarah. You are the child of the free woman. You are free. You are free from striving to earn God's favor. You already have it in Christ. You are free from your slavery to sin and the corruption of your own heart. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart to set you free from that. You're free from condemnation for your sins. You're free from having to work to earn God's love and affection. You're free from the slavery of your own heart. You're free to be able to enjoy the glorious inheritance that belongs to all of the children of God through faith. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would walk in that freedom, that you would experience the joy and the assurance of knowing that Jesus has left nothing undone. He has left no work unperformed. He has done all things well. It's finished your adoption into the family of God is complete and he loves you as you are because of Christ his blood has forever secured your pardon his righteousness has forever secured your acceptance into the father's family and your inheritance in the father's estate so you can walk in the joy of knowing that you are loved of the Father. And listen, Rance, there ain't a thing you can do about it. But let me close by speaking a word to those of you who I pray by God's grace have been awakened to recognize that you're an Ishmael and not an Isaac. You're a slave in a covenant under the covenant of law. You're excluded from the Father's family and cut off from the Father's inheritance. To you this morning, I tell you, Rejoice. Because I think Genesis 21 1 is happening to you. In other words, I think God has awakened you to the reality of slavery because He intends this morning to set you free. I think He's awakened you to the reality of bondage because He intends this morning to give you birth. You're being born according to the promise. By the spirit of free and sovereign grace. And listen to me. All you need to do this morning is to receive your sonship by faith. Hear, believe, and receive. Believe that Christ died to secure your pardon. Believe that Christ gives his righteousness freely to those who receive it by faith. You no longer stand beneath Sinai which, which rumbles with thunder and smokes and, and flashes of lightning. You stand before the gates of Zion and they are open wide before you this morning. So call upon the name of Christ. Ask him to come and to walk you in the gates. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin and to grant you His Spirit and He will come and He will take the yoke of slavery off of your shoulders and He will take the filthy garments of sin off of your body and He will clothe you in the perfect and spotless garments of His righteousness and He will lead you through the gates of splendor into Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem where there are innumerable angels gathered in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood which is sprinkled that speaks better than the blood of Abel. That's Zion, and that's your new home. You have been born this morning. So walk in. Walk in by faith. So the call of this text is to come. Come, you sons and daughters of freedom. Come and worship and enjoy the inheritance which has been set before you. Worship without fear. Walk in joy and delight. And I invite you to come, you slaves of sin and the law, because Jesus will take your slavery away and He'll remove your bondage and the yoke of your your striving. You can be free this morning. Just come to Him and believe. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, the words of this message will only make sense to those to whom you make it make sense, for the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of, or glory of Christ who is the image of God. So I ask, as I did at the beginning, that you would do here today what only you can do. Give birth, set free, send your spirit, forgive sin, bring to life. All of the glorious effects of the gospel would you fulfill in the midst of your people this morning. And we will praise and worship you for it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.